Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports, informs and embraces the spouses beside the military members by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Want to join a bank that just gets Defence Life? Defence Bank is one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. They have 33 on-base branches across Australia, an award-winning banking app that allows you to do all your banking wherever and whenever you want. And with products and services tailored for ADF members and Defence spouses, you'll wonder why you didn't join sooner. Visit defencebank.com.au today and see how easy your banking can be. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Sharon Lorne from Flinders University and research consultant, Tiffany Sharp. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Tiffany and Beck. It's great to join you today. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Sharon, can you talk us through how did it come to be that you ended up going into the field of research when it came to military communities and first responders? So um, I've always done a, a lot of mental health research. I managed the Department of Psychiatry at Flinders for a long time and did a lot of mental health research. So, And that was also based around veterans with the Coordinated Veterans Care Program and more recently with evaluating a wellbeing program for the Department of Veteran Affairs. But I'm also um, you know, a mental health family consumer advocate nationally. I'm the executive director for Lived Experience Australia, which is a national peak. So I basically live the families and mental health aspect. And Tiffany, can you talk us through how you're connected to the military community? My background stems from 21 years in the defence and veteran community. I'm married to a naval officer, former naval officer. I worked in uh, clinical nutrition in counselling centres, and I guess that's where I first started to come across um, the offspring of Vietnam veterans and started to become a little bit more familiar with the term um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And from there... um, I experienced a breakdown of marriage and it was a very um, interesting event. I just put a Facebook post that I was willing to give anyone experiencing a breakdown of marriage help with their paperwork and legalities. And within seconds, I started to get messages back from people around Australia experiencing issues with their military um, marriage. And from there, I formed a non-profit that encouraged peer support in tribe service partners. And it was there that I noticed a pattern that was contributing to the breakdown of relationships. And primarily, that was a change in behavior post-deployment, and partners were no longer recognizing their loved ones. So that gave me more of a contemporary understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder, including military domestic violence. And that's where my advocacy work uh, for families started from there. And obviously an area that needs more attention even now, you know, you've been doing what you've been doing for quite a while now, but it's still an area that still needs a lot of focus and attention. Absolutely. It's a lot better than it used to be. I mean, back in 2012 with the Department of Veterans Affairs, we released some short films discussing uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and that brought a lot of senior leadership and uh, former veterans from tri-service in that footage talking about their personal experiences. And um, former Major General John Cantwell came out in the media and started talking about his experience. And that just changed everything to something that was really in the dark and not spoken about, certainly in the workforce in the ADF, to something that the conversations began. But there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. Yes. 
Yeah, definitely. And obviously through DVA and all of those support organizations or the, you know, defense and the organizations that that manage and, and they're responsible for veterans and defense members, their focus is obviously on the defense member and helping the defense member through whatever they're experiencing. But today we're talking about the launch of your research titled Moral Injury and Families experiences of supporting veterans and emergency services first responders to seek help for mental health problems. Uh, Sharon, can you tell us how this research came about? Yeah, I've been doing uh, families research for quite a while in the mental health area. Uh, Obviously, I was partly driven uh, by my own sort of experience. And also, um, I had some students that came forward that were interested as well. And one of those was Elaine Waddell, who did her Doctor of Public health with me. So I'd already done a study where, um, you know, my, my background in advocacy was sitting in lots of consumer care advisory meetings where people would actually, um, you know, lots of older parents of people with mental illness who would complain basically about uh, all the tasks that they had to do. And that, that wasn't my experience because I'm, it's my husband. It's not my, um, my child, my adult child with with mental ill health. So a lot of that research was about, you know, striving to define something that was different about the caring relationship because it was a relationship, you know, it's not a parent-child relationship. So that sort of led to a series of studies, which I did. And then Elaine came along and wanted to do her Doctor of Public Health. Interestingly, some of the earlier studies, uh, quite a few veteran uh, spouses had come forward Uh, in some of those studies as well and then so it just went from there really to um, you know the the interest anyway in PTSD uh, which I've also experienced PTSD for about 30 years my husband has had his issues so you know it all sort of came together really. And Tiffany why focus on families? You've been through a breakdown of marriage and you've been in contact with a lot of families through your work and your not-for-profit and you know just having that lived experience of being a military spouse but why is it important to focus on families when it comes to the defense member experiencing mental health challenges? Basically families are at the forefront of noticing any changes in their loved one and what our research and our work was showing us that perhaps the family member was uh, noticing this before the actual former serving person noticed any changes themselves or wanted to recognise any issues. So they were the really the, the front runners in understanding that something's happening here and we need to get some help. And yeah. my current uh, husband is also experienced uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So we went through different modalities and, and different pathways to get him some help. So it was my individual experience in that system, uh, but also having all the stories from BOMS members and yeah. our wider research. Yeah, that really informed us that we need to give some help to the families because the research was also showing that the most favourable outcome for the person suffering from PTSD is actually family support. Yeah. And Sharon, like you mentioned, the relationship between a defence member or a first responder and their significant other is different compared to the relationship with a parent and an adult child. Obviously, the defence member's partner is their intimate partner, but they're also then taking, blurring those lines and taking on the role of carer. And so the more that they can be supported in supporting the defense member or the, or the person experiencing those mental health challenges, the better outcome, you know, when 
they're able to come through those challenges and have their relationship intact or, or be, being able to tackle it together, but then also both have, be able to get the support that they need. That's right. And the other, in, you know, the other important thing for me, uh, which, you know, I've been, like many, have been banging on for decades uh, around inclusion of family, is that they're often treated by um, service systems just as sources of information, but they're not actually supported and engaged with uh, in an, any ongoing way in that process. So they're uh, information is extracted from them sometimes if they're asked but then they're not actually you know not the follow-through with uh, being included in the ongoing plans uh, and as you know like people live their lives in their houses and homes and communities not in a within a one-hour appointment with a health professional so you know it's pretty basic pretty logical that families should be included where the person obviously is okay with that yeah and tiffany like you mentioned it's often the partner or the wife or the husband that is the one that usually picks up on the fact that something is different about the defense member or the first responder and that they need to seek some sort of help or that something's happening they're not quite sure what's happening yet but they're the one the first ones that sort of recognize what's going on and and it usually a lot of the time, the one encouraging that person to seek help or even doing the research to, to see what is available out there. So they're the ones often taking them or prompting them to go and seek that help. And then they are then also the person that is there for them when they come from that help, like Sharon mentioned, the one hour appointment, or if they do have to go to a mental health facility or whatever the you know treatment is or help is, the partner and the family are the ones that are there before and the ones that are there hopefully afterwards absolutely back yeah to use more of a, a military term they're, they're definitely on the front line and they're seeing the changes and they're leading the charge in trying to get the help they're actually pleading um, in many cases to get help and to be heard but with our current medical model and system with confidentiality and privacy often they're, they're shut out or not considered even to be part of the diagnosis in terms of getting all the symptom information together, which is quite surreal when you think about it. That's the, the big picture in what's happening. And then there's also the carer role that they have, but also if there's children involved, they could be witnessing intergenerational impact from post-service as well. So it's a, a carer role, it's a, a partner role, and then it's almost a protective and nurturing role for the, the wider family as well. And like you mentioned, Sharon, we're not even sort of getting to the, the whole aspect of that carer or that partner then from whatever their defence member or first responder is experiencing then has their own trauma and their own mental health impacts and challenges from having to balance that caring role and whatever else they're needing to balance, whether that be they have to go and get a full-time job to be able to help the family stay financially viable or they have to look out after the children even more and, and feel like they don't have that partner to lean on or whatever the case may be. Yes, it's, it's a very different life. You've touched on the, the person and, and their own needs, uh, but also, you know, people don't live in a vacuum. So the consequences of anything for um, other members of the household, they're real, they're lived, they're daily. You know, what, what impacts the, the veteran, any circumstance impacts the family. 
because they share the same spaces. They share the relationships and the intimacy and the concerns and the goals and aspirations and they share their life. So clearly it's going to have consequences for them, big and small things. So the the title of the research is Moral Injury and Families' Experiences of Supporting Veterans and Emergency Services First Responders to Seek Help for Mental Health Problems. What does moral injury actually mean in that context? One of the first people uh, to use the term was a a fellow called Jonathan Shea, and he um, was a psychiatrist at Boston in the US at a, a veterans clinic there and you know he basically over a period of time became unsure of the usual care that he was seeing and he saw that something else was going on something else needed to be defined in what he was seeing of all the people that he was seeing so his first definition was that it was a betrayal of what's right by someone who holds legitimate authority in a high stakes situation so that early sense of this is not just about post-traumatic stress this is something underlying that around betrayal there was a real sense of that people were talking about moral and ethical concerns so that person then because of that betrayal that veteran was seen to be um, having trouble with trust and then feeling hopeless and mental distress because of that and they didn't seem to be able to resolve that so the difference between post-traumatic stress where you know there was treatments presumably that were being tried this seemed to linger and then uh, Brett Litz who was also from uh, the Boston VA a number of years later also started looking at this dissonance this contrast that was happening between what was going on for people so much later in fact Nikki Jameson who's been uh, on the media recently um, she's the mother of a veteran who suicided uh, so she's busy with the Royal Commission at the moment she did um, a PhD very recently and her um, systematic lit review she looked at this issue of moral injury and the things that come out are that it's a violation or a betrayal either by omission which is a failure to act or by what they call commission which is taking action that leads to harm so by not acting or acting in a way that causes further harm so when you think about an organization and how it behaves towards its workforce or its members that's where you start getting this idea of moral injury being a, an organizational thing but traditionally it was that you know it was applied to veterans in the field where they were called upon to do deeds that were you know morally abhorrent to them uh, in in any other aspect of their life Thanks, Sharon. That's um, spot on. And I was just going to maybe elucidate that with a few examples because it's um, multifaceted. It's not just sort of one level playing field um, that can cause moral injury for uh, family members. Our study was really showing that being a sounding board for the worst of those trauma experienced um, by the serving in deployments can mean that they're being described daily, you know, the saving of life or the taking of life and bringing the horror of those moments to them, which is a double-edged sword because you you want them to debrief and you have that emotional intimacy, but then you're also starting to feel the impact of imagining those moments and feeling those moments with your partner. There's other examples uh, recently with the recent events in Afghanistan It's not just the serving person that may be questioning the the moral right and wrong of being in certain areas and certain actions. It's also the families that are serving alongside with them. They're also having those questions. 
and you know feeling that impact as well. Recently, the SASR families who are speaking of the impact of having their loved one service and, and character questioned. But the, the probably the biggest one is that hierarchical and organisational betrayal, which is not having the support of the organisation, especially when you're approaching them to say, listen, I, I'm seeing this happening in my loved ones, you know, having it dismissed or not being listened to enough uh, to actually have some sort of care framework in place. And then there's a, a bit of a confronting one, which is where families and um, spouses and partners have more of the physiological trauma, for instance, uh, being choked into unconsciousness during a night terror episode and asking for help from the organisation and letting them know that this is happening, but then not getting any help in return. That results in actual trauma, then the vicarious trauma, and then the moral injury on top. So the families really do need to have uh, specific tools and emphasis um, in their role for helping the veteran. And then, of course, on the flip side, while they're experiencing all of that, the spouse and the family members may not feel able to then obviously lean on the person that is also usually their go-to person or that person that supports them because, you know, that defence member or that first responder is going through so much that you feel sometimes like what you're going through is insignificant or you don't want to burden them with that or they they just don't have the capacity to handle that so you're dealing with both their trauma the trauma that it's causing you but then also what you're going through and trying to manage all of that with the family and with everyday life what I'd add is that what we found and what we knew you know families are so vested in the role you know in the identity like the the person you know when they become a, a military family they're very invested in the role. You know, they give up a lot. They sacrifice a lot. They move around. They get kids shuffled in schools. You know, the whole family is vested in the pride of being a military family as well. And so when things start to go wrong and then there's this failure that happens by the organisation and families are completely then, they're not listened to or they're shut out when they're trying to actually raise the concerns. It's a double betrayal, you know, because they've invested in something but then they're being shut out and they, they're stuck. So it became very clear that what they were describing was that the person's experience of not getting support from the organisation was, it felt like their own experience as well of not getting support because the two things were one, they weren't separate. Especially because unlike other jobs, when the defence member becomes a defence member or you you meet a defence member and you, you know, get married, have a family and, you know, build a life together, unbeknownst to you, the defence member's job and career has impacts and you have sacrifices and it, it, it isn't until you start living that life that you realise what sort of impact service life has on the partner and, and the family despite the fact, you know, they might be living their life and, and trying to remain unaffected by it, it becomes part of your family and it controls some of your life. And there's just no way of, I guess, escaping the the challenges and, you know, the, the celebrations of defense life. And so, like you mentioned, it's not, it's not a choice that they, whether they, I guess, experience the things that the defense member experiences, it's because that becomes their life. They, they're in the defence community. 
Absolutely. The um, when they sign their marriage contract, they sign on. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's uh, readily um, understood enough, and uh, until you just as you described said that suddenly you find yourself uh, very much part of this new community and it's it's wonderful but with that that can also stop some of the conversations that need to happen because it is such a small community when um, a loved one is is displaying behavior that's not normally their character so yes it, it should be understood more that the family kind of signs on when the serving person does absolutely and then obviously it's also then dealing with once the defense member does seek that help it's a question of is that defense member then able to stay in that job what will it mean for their career and then what will it mean for you you and your family and you know if you were to start that transition out of defense that's a whole whole other ball game and a whole other set of challenges with the defense member making that transition out and you know navigating life out of defense and all that comes with that and then you know your identity as a defense family and all of that yes part of the main findings in our research and global research is actually the loss of identity and transitioning out of the adf and i often hear that um, discussed with uh, partners and former partners as well which is probably not thought of as much it's not quite fitting in with the civilian world and no longer quite fitting in with the defence world as well once you transition out. So that loss of identity is definitely something that we've seen um, in our research pointed out the veteran but I would love to see in um, you know tangible outcomes in the future seeing family members part of workshops in you know refining or redefining purpose and identity I think that would go a long way in helping transition for the veteran and for the family. And so Sharon can you briefly talk us through what the main findings of your research were obviously we've just touched on some of the aspects but what were the main findings? We spoke with people across veterans and first responder communities and quite a large proportion of Uh, this most current study were police families and they particularly had very significant alignments with the earlier research with the veteran families that we'd had anyway. So we um, did a qualitative study and so that's where you do interviews and then you do a thematic process to try and look for patterns that stand out prominently. So, you know, the first thing that we found, obviously, to establish the process was, yeah, it's a very different job to other jobs and all the things that we've talked about already. And then, you know, another really significant theme was around what Tiffany was talking about earlier, around families recognising problems often years, months and years earlier. But some people actually seeing, you know, going, getting to a point where they'd actually put up with quite a lot of distress and just put it down to being oh that's just part of this job you know that's just the stress of the job but actually um, it was you know for a long period of time uh, dismissing clear mental health concerns as just part of the role so that looking and acknowledging early warning signs and that families were the people that really were in the best position to do that was another theme and then what we then sort of heard from people was 
that it's actually very difficult to then seek help. So once the family member knows that something's not right here, it's then that barrier, you know, those series of barriers that they get when they try knocking on the doors to get help from mental health services, from general practice, from the military itself. So there's a whole range of those. And then, so it, it's often also the, the veteran themselves that, you know, is difficult to get to appointments difficult to convince sometimes so you know things build up to a tipping point where it's not until it reaches you know sometimes a crisis point before the person will then even acknowledge for themselves yeah maybe I need to do something here and you're right and then them agreeing to doing anything about it so it can fester away for a long time and then the other thing that a lot of people talked about was that you know often it's a fraught process. You know, you think that, you know, once they're ready, yep, we'll just go and we'll find someone, we'll get the help you need. But it's actually then finding the right people, uh, finding people you trust in a very fragmented system sometimes. So, you know, there were challenges and people just had to persist, really. Uh, and that's where, you know, they rose to the advocacy in that process because they realised that they were dealing with systems that were not always good at communicating with each other, let alone with the person and them. And then this idea of ongoing support needs and what families were saying they needed. So we asked people, well, you know, what would make this different? So we also had a theme around that as well. So it was sort of following the journey, really, that people were taking uh, and trying to describe that in its various steps. Nine out of ten defence spouses wish they found out about Defence Bank sooner. Okay, I might have just made that up and they do sponsor my podcast, but I've checked them out and I think they're worth a look just for their banking app alone. It's award-winning and currently has a rating of 4.8 out of 5 in both the app and Google Play Store. It does everything a big bank app does with cool features like fast same-day payments, card alerts and controls, pin change functionality, savings roundup, spend tracker, the list goes on. Oh, and if you really want to go to a Defence Bank branch, you can. There are 33 on-base branches across Australia, and with many of their branch staff a defence spouse or partner, you'll be talking to someone who just gets it. Banking as a defence spouse doesn't have to be hard. For more info, visit defencebank.com.au. Tiffany, obviously Sharon's just described that, you know, there's not one clear path for support or to seek out services and and help when it does come to the point and when most of them do come to that tipping point, it is crisis because they do sort of brush off some of the early warning signs as just being part of the job. Also, Sharon mentioned that it's then usually the partner or a family member then advocating for that defence member or first responder to receive help and support because when they do reach that tipping point, it is at a point where sometimes that that person who's experiencing the mental health challenges actually can't advocate for themselves or doesn't know what they need or just doesn't have the, I guess, the energy or ability to be able to advocate for themselves. Can you talk about some of the, maybe some of the family's experiences of supporting veterans in seeking help when all of that has obviously gone on to get them to the point to seek that help? Yeah, well, um, many of the participants describe the moral injury or that sense of betrayal associated with the lack of organisational support. Basically, they don't have the knowledge or the professional tools to be able to manage the day-to-day life with their loved one. You know, suddenly they're going to have to wear many hats. And how do you upskill? How do you, you know, when did anyone tell us that this 
might happen um, and what are you meant to do when you start seeing those earlier red flags. Basically, the findings are showing that when they're looking for that help seeking, they're just often dismissed by the, the GP, psychologist, psychiatrist, and all the way through that rehabilitation process. I guess some of the things to be aware of that families are saying through the research is that the organisations and mental health professionals and, and the medical model need to be further made aware that intimate relationships will incur a natural sort of mechanism of unsafe disclosure. And that's due to the great things in relationships like trust and the emotional connection and proximity. So they really need tools on how to deal with that. How do you debrief whether wanted or unwanted in a veteran or military community? And I think the study was just highlighting that this is actually occurring. And there's a large gap in that knowledge and awareness from both you know, family members and um, mental health professionals. During our research, we, we've had participants um, talking about many examples. And one of them, again, defied belief, which was about a participant calling a veteran service and talking about some of the red flags she was seeing, a change in behaviour post-deployment, and she thinks that he, has, he's, he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And actually having the person on the other side of the line laugh and telling her, no, the army psychs test for that. The army psychiatrists and psychologists would have picked up on any signs of PTSD post-deployment. And, you know, basically leaving the conversation like that as if, you know, not only dismissing what she was saying, but laughing that it could even be possible. And we know that veterans are very learned in being able to be very high functioning and say what they need to say to remain employed and not be medically discharged. So a lot of participants um, suffered similarly with trying to get help initially and the um, partner wasn't willing to be the voice at that stage. And you're talking years before so you're talking a very early uh, red flag stage and they end up doing what they can for as long as they can. And then obviously as well, the partners then have the guilt of knowing that their defence member or partner needs support and help, but then also the other implications that, you know, they have in the back of their mind, like, you know, if I get med downgraded, I might not get that promotion um, or if, they know that something's going on, I won't be able to go on that deployment or even, you know, to the point where if there's DV involved, that if they find out that I've had something happen with the police, then I might get my, you know, weapons taken away from me. All of those sort of things that play on the mind of the partners and the families when they're trying to seek that help, but then also, you know, play into, like you said, veterans and and those people in those roles are very good at being high functioning in those roles absolutely and, and you're spot on with with all of those points if you um you need to be issued with weapons to be deployed and there's you know deployment money and, um, and retention bonuses and, and different things and obviously also the stigma on top of having any um uncharacteristic behavior associated with your service We've even gone as far as to use different language to make, to enhance former serving veterans to feel at ease instead of saying PTS disorder, we, we just say PTS or we say stress maladaptive behaviour. 
because there's such a strong stigma of being a malingerer or being weak, having all of this impact their income earning capacity and their career progression. And that's in service and that's also as a veteran in the civilian world as well. Those issues still follow you. So absolutely, there's a, there's a lot of roadblocks um, still in place. And even recently, um, there was a mid-level ranking officer who actually put their hand up to PTSD and was medically discharged. So they're being quite vocal in the fact that we think we've come so far and then we actually haven't. As well, you've got the uh, also the underlying just as challenging issues, which is that the defence member, more than likely, their community and their friendships and, you know, their whole world is based off their service. Whereas, you know, the partner and the families, they are out in the community daily, despite the fact that the challenges of defence life, and we do kind of take on that identity of being a defence family and defence partner, we still, we are still connected to the civilian world in different ways through work and schooling and and all of that sort of thing. But the defence member's whole world is basically defence and, you know, them having to think, if I put my hand up for support or say that I'm having these problems, it number one going to affect my job. And like you mentioned, earning capacity deployment, whether I'm able to have weapons or actually do my job, how people think about me and all of those underlying things. But then also thinking about, well, am I also then going to lose my friends and my community? And and what, what does it even mean? Absolutely. What I love about what you just said is is it also highlights that family members are the best uh, port of call in integrating into the civilian community. Like you said, we've got a, a foot edgeways in both worlds and have been doing so successfully probably for decades by the time transition out of the um, defence force starts to occur. And so the family unit is really that should be the leader in the help seeking and in the, the entire process all the way through and in workshopping, you know, what's my new identity? What's the new chapter? What's my new purpose? Because purpose really seems to be an underlying factor in successfully transitioning if you have uh, PTS coming out of the um, military community and families really are shining a light on how that could be done. But unfortunately, they're not considered leaders or the, or the main point of contact. And uh, these studies are basically showing we need to have that changed. We need to bring more awareness to it. And so obviously, Sharon, what we've just been speaking about shows that families play a critical role in supporting help seeking and then also transition out and, you know, managing whatever mental health challenges are diagnosed and existing and and need to be managed. How do we help organisations to see the significant role that families play and to elevate that and support that and encourage that? Yeah, I think other, you know, obviously we do research like this and we put it in front of the people that we think need to hear it uh, on all sorts of levels. So, you know, that's from defence, from DVA, all sorts of organisational levels to uh, more broadly, but particularly also for families. So out of this most recent research, we've produced a guide for families, which essentially mirrors the themes that we found so that families themselves can be acknowledged and affirmed and also gain some tips and understanding to keep going um, in what they're doing. But also um, 
So a companion guide to that we've also produced for health professionals. So both of those, well, Legacy Australia, for example, is very keen to distribute that nationally to its uh, legatees and connections nationally. And we've also been talking to Defence Families Australia. And interestingly, you know, uh, police force uh, and other groups are also picking it up. I think we just need to keep keep raising the voice. You know, there's so much investment in in the military. It's just common sense, isn't it, that you want to look after that investment. And part of that investment is looking after the family, which are playing a critical role in supporting that person in their in their job, but also in their life throughout their military career and beyond. It just makes economic sense let alone social and emotional sense yeah and moral responsibility absolutely and tiffany so i mean you've been in the defense world you've been a defense spouse you know how that all sort of works why is it important and you know you would know of what research does exist and what areas need more research in regard to the defence community and I guess families' needs and um, defence partners' needs. Why is it important that research like this is undertaken and continues to be conducted because there isn't as much research in these areas as what there needs to be? Why is it important that we continue to see more research like this? Really simply, as an advocate rattling the chains and and banging the drums, uh, it was always told by senior leadership to show them the evidence. So the the research is key for that evidence. And and with that evidence, that's where um, policy change and infrastructure and frameworks can be implemented within organisations. And so it's, it's really then from having the evidence to then really promoting it and making it aware and putting it in front of the change makers so we can make those important changes and really encouraging um, the voices within the community. It's, you know, it's exhausting to make time in your day to, you know, do surveys and talk to interviewers, but that voice is so vitally important to make those changes. Um, I mean, what we're seeing is a, a bit of a history repeating in correlation from the Vietnam uh, veteran era all the way through to contemporary veterans. And we want to be that change. We want to be that pattern interruption. And that's why this research is so vitally important. In a perfect world, where to from here? Like, obviously, you've done the research, you've shown, and like you said, it just makes sense to support families and partners. And the more that families and partners are supported, the more the defence member or the first responder is supported. So where to from here? Like, in a perfect world, what would be, you know, those, those changes that, defence or the organisations, sport organisations could make that would really make a big difference? The first obvious thing is to not just wait until problems come along, but to actually fully and better prepare uh, everyone entering the military, i.e. including their family. Uh, So there's a lot more that could be done. You know, it's not just about giving people a brochure, I think, uh, if they even remember that they got one in relation to what families could expect. I think it's, you know, it starts right from the beginning and then right through with on, you know, ongoing. So you don't assume that, yep, you've given people information, that's the end of it. But, you know, that there should be a process through someone's career where there's a whole lot of ideas that could be implemented in an ongoing way and then out through transition. It's so fragmented. I know when I first 
was starting doing research in this area, I, I couldn't believe that the ADF and the DVA, there was the lack of, you know, integration and connection. It just didn't make common sense. It was surprising. So, you know, there's a still a very long way to go, I think, in getting those good communication links across these support sectors as well. And then out into, you know, broader education for all of those services that are where veterans and their families are going to be interacting. Yeah, definitely. And Tiffany, if in a perfect world, what would you say would be the one thing that they could do tomorrow to really help with what we've obviously just spoken about in and elevating families and partners to being included and not being so invisible? Well, the great thing um, that is different between even five years ago and now is that there's wonderful organisations out there like um, MESHA, which is the Military and Emergency Service Health Australia, and they can um, link you up with tailored pathways, basically, once you make that first call. So the key perfect world scenario would be don't be afraid to put your hand up you'll find that you'll have more in common most likely within the veteran community than being dissimilar or being isolated. And especially with COVID-19 and, and world pandemic problems, it's probably more important than ever before to make that first phone call and to see the, the wealth of organisations out there that are really bending over backwards to do what they can to help. And it's not one size fits all, but with everything out there, you can pretty much guarantee that you'll find something that you can um, that will speak to you, um, and that goes right around from arts, theatre to, you know, landscaping, woodwork, beekeeping, Invictus Games, you know, all the way right through. Um, and it would be good in the perfect world to see it a bit more tailored to families, and especially, you know, workshops where there's childcare involved and, and those things. So we can really get the voices of in families whether it's same sex or de facto relationships or, or marriages and just get everyone's input because your voices matter. They really do. Once those voices are heard, what do you see needs to happen with those voices? Because obviously it's all well and good to do the research, to have people come forward and voice their concerns, but it's then that collective voice going forward and having an impact on changing what they're saying is, isn't working. Well, the big one would be institutional change right from the, the training perspective of, of military personnel and awareness that the role means it's very unique from other roles that you might not come home or you, make, you might come home differently. And from that training level, having the tools in place that involve partners and family members of if this is happening, you know, A, B and C uh, is more of the pathway that you could take. And the evidence is showing that this is effective or the evidence is showing that that's not effective. So what the research is showing us is what's been happening um, in the contemporary era is not working. And what we saw in past eras was not working. So in an ideal world, we would be seeing institutional change from training and, and having hard conversations about what that job involves and what that impact will be from having that job. And it's very interesting to find out that some of those discussions never happened at a training level, not, at, not even at uh, ADFA, at an officer level. An emphasis on ethics classes, those sorts of things, uh, I think would have a, a, ma a major impact. Like you mentioned, including the partners and families from, from that stage, if, you know, the defence member entering, you know, ADFA or 
the defence world or going away to training has a partner or a family at that stage, including them along the way so that they know how to, that there is information there, they know how to access the information and that also they have that information in the back of their mind so that if a situation like yeah. PTSD or, or the like does occur, they at least have some sort of knowledge about, okay, yeah, I was told about this or I know where to access this or whatever the case. Absolutely. They would, would stop feelings of that isolation and being alone and, and perhaps some of more of the destructive behaviour because it would be getting to them early. And to be aware that you could be someone that is having to deal with trauma and almost have to be a professional in um, trauma-informed care. I mean, what does that look like? Is there a framework for that? And, you know, that these sorts of things need to be um, discussed and an evidence-based framework designed with the input from families. Absolutely. Probably all I would add, you know, obviously because I'm, in heavily involved in advocacy um, more broadly in rental health. You know, it, it's getting into those environments where you actually are helping change the language and the understanding and the policies and the underlying structures of things so that people just take it as a given that, yes, families are involved here. So that's part of the bigger work that I do in other with other hats on. Sharon, can you suggest how families would do that? It, like, obviously, we have Defence Families Australia that advocate for Defence Families. How do they, when, when they're in the thick of going through those challenges or advocating for their defence member or first responder, how do they sort of, I guess, step out of that, out of, outside of that and think, how can I impact, you know, changing this for the greater good or having my voice heard? What, what is it that they can do? to, I guess, have that change? I think, you know, uh, in mental health, people are very good at finding each other. So, you know, a lot of advocacy has stemmed from sheer need to have combined voices uh, and basic human rights are part of the history of that. So, you know, people find each other, um, they join formal and informal advocacy organisations uh, like Tiffany established the bomb support uh, and people came and they found that process. There are significant mental health advocacy areas out there. I know my own peak lived experience Australia, we do a lot of work nationally. We've got a very large membership. A number of those, of course, are veteran families. You know, I'm sure out of this Royal Commission that there are people that are coming together and getting energy to say we need to get organised as families around this as well. So people will, will be drawn to advocacy. And Tiffany, I guess it also takes when you have been faced, like we mentioned earlier, with the situation where you've called that support organisation and you may have been laughed at or not taken seriously or made to feel like, you were asking too much or that, you know, you're not entitled to that service or it's not bad enough or whatever the case, that you feeling empowered to be able to say, actually, no, I'm allowed to advocate for my partner. I'm I'm allowed to say that this is not good enough. Absolutely. And I think that's the, the main um, crux of, of our research findings and, and global research findings is that perhaps in the veteran and defence community, because it is a unique job, that perhaps there needs to be a, a unique framework 
in um, putting up your hand and highlighting that there's red flags happening at home or in the relationship and not have that A, discounted or B, through confidentiality in the current medical model setup to be um, sidelined. And it's, it's not black and white. The relationships are very grey. There can be abuse on both sides. And so that makes it a bit of a tricky situation. But we're all humans, doctors, GPs, psychologists, psychiatrists. So there, I think there needs to be a little bit of discretion uh, once the tick box of a veteran or, or military person or family member has put up the hand to say, hey, we, we really need to listen to this and take that into consideration when we're making appointments and when we're going further with diagnosis and or treatment. Well, thank you so much, Sharon and Tiffany, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Beck. Thank you, Beck, and keep up the great work. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarylife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 